Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for this morning uh, to worship you, uh, to acknowledge who you are, and to acknowledge that we are uh, in need of you, uh, that we do sin and that we need to confess, and yet you still save us. So thank you. Pray for your spirit to be with us, to hear your word, uh, to be convicted by it, to, to also be encouraged by what you say. So in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So before I came to St. Louis uh, four years ago, I worked with a missions organization uh, in Central Asia for two years. Um, and during those two years, God really showed me uh, the realness of persecution and suffering that God's people go through in other parts of the world. Um, where I did ministry was actually one of the safest places uh, to do ministry in that region, in the region of Central Asia. Um, and because of that, our missions organization would often do gatherings uh, to encourage one another, to also do trainings. Um, so our min the ministry leaders in that area would come to my country, uh, and where they were had much more persecution than when, where I was. It was during one of those gatherings that I actually had one of those moments where I realized how real persecution was. Um, one of our ministry leader leaders was sharing a prayer request with us, and he was asking us to pray for safety for one of his, a uh, few of his disciples. Uh, these disciples were helping him build a network of house churches in his country. Um, and what he was asking uh, for us to do was pray that they could be found because they actually went missing. Um, they couldn't be reached by phone or they weren't at their home. Um, they just simply disappeared. And as I looked at the expression on his face and those around me, I saw expressions of sadness. Uh, I saw expressions of, of anger, um, but also a lack of surprise. Um, and for me, this was surprising. You know, it was pretty surreal to hear news like this. Um, but I think for them, those that are around me, uh, they knew it came with a territory of doing ministry in these places. And as the weeks and months passed by since that gathering, uh, they were actually, these disciples were actually never found. Um, and I think for me, as I process this, like just reading this passage and thinking about this four years ago, I don't know if I ever really figured out what to do with that. How do you react when you see persecution and suffering of this kind? As we look at today's passage, that is the type of question that James is trying to answer for his fellow Christians over 2,000 years ago. James is writing to Jewish Christians, experiencing persecution. They're spread apart in, uh, throughout the region, and they're experiencing other types of suffering as well. And what James says here is actually pretty challenging uh, to his Christians that are around him, but also, I think, for us. In the face of suffering, he doesn't say uh, to fight back with violence. He also doesn't say to switch sides, to compromise on your beliefs, uh, thinking that that will make your life better. Uh, what James actually says is that we actually have to experience uh, suffering well. In this life, we're called to suffer well. As Christians, whether you're persecuted or not, we're all called to suffer well. And that's a hard thing to do. We in America have created an environment that is suffering avoidant. We hide behind material possessions, we hide behind our convenience, uh, maybe money, power, control, right? So we don't have to experience that pain and suffering in our lives. We're actually encouraged to not suffer well. So if you're in pain, if you're frightened, you're frustrated, you're sad, you're angry, all we do is we tell ourselves all you gotta do 
is buy something, you got to eat something, just hook up with someone, uh, to run away, to switch jobs, to do anything it is to avoid that pain and suffering. In America, we might not have the danger of losing our physical lives like other Christians in other parts of the world, but we still have the danger of turning to other things other than God in the midst of suffering. And this is why James's instructions are relevant to us this morning here in St. Louis. Uh, how do we suffer well as God's people? So James says we must do three things in this passage. Uh, the first thing is to be patient. The second is to not grumble. The third is to be a person of our word. Um, so in, in Rusi's actions in one simple fact, that Jesus is coming back. Because Jesus is coming back, we can suffer well. So let's first uh, look at uh, these three behaviors. Uh, the first is patience, so let's see what James means by them. Um, so just look at, again, at verse 7. It says, uh, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In the midst of persecution and various trials, James says to be patient. And what he does is that he likens this patience to that of a farmer, the patience that a farmer has to have when he's waiting for that precious fruit to be grown. A farmer has to wait for the early and, wait, uh, early and late rains, meaning he has to wait for a full season of rain, the rain that comes in October and also the rain that comes in March or April. Right? He has to wait for the whole season to pass in order to get that precious fruit. And so what we see is that this patience is built upon trust. Trust in not his own work as a farmer, but the trust in that of the work of Mother Nature. So as we suffer, patience happens when we trust that Jesus is coming back. That whatever is happening to you in your life right now, Jesus promises, and he's going to fulfill this promise, of coming back and making all things new on the last day. If we look at uh, verse 8, James explains where this patience comes from, where this trust actually resides. He says this, he says to establish your hearts. This patience is not a skill that you can just pick up a book and find five different steps of getting better patience. But what James says is that this patience actually is just in the heart. It resides in the heart. It's a symptom of trust. And that's exactly why it's so hard to be patient, right? If we're honest with ourselves, uh, we actually don't trust that Jesus is going to come back, that he's going to make good on all his promises. So let me just give an example uh, from my own life of how I struggle to trust in Jesus coming back. Uh, one of the things that I experienced suffering in is in the area of singleness. Um, I'm not saying singleness is a curse. Um, God views it as a gift, as a blessing. Uh, it is a positive thing. The Apostle Paul says that. Jesus was single. Um, many of the 12 disciples were single. In God's eyes, singleness says nothing negative about your value. Uh, yet this view of singleness is not lived out so well in our world. Our society, and arguably the church, uh, makes it advantageous to actually be married. Um, that could be financially, whether that be um, trying to buy a home or trying to buy a car. It's really hard on one income. Uh, that can also be relationally, right, where single people have to fight really hard to not be lonely. Loneliness is one of the biggest struggles of being single, uh, especially as you get older and older into life. So the systems and the way we talk about uh, singleness also adds to this, uh, where it makes it seem like singleness is less than marriage. So there's a lot of pressure 
for single people to be married, even though it's a good gift. There's a lot of struggle. And so followers of Jesus uh, who are single uh, find themselves in a place that is, they feel kind of stuck, right? I feel, I feel kind of stuck in a way at times. And because of that, it's easy to believe that there's actually something wrong with you, that there's something wrong with your stage of life, and that you actually uh, d- do not trust how God views singleness. And when we are in that place, it's easy to not be patient, right? We can become impatient to do the exact opposite of what James says. Uh, we can start, you know, dating or even marrying a non-Christian. Uh, we can even compromise our beliefs by hooking up with someone on a regular basis. We can rush into relationships regardless of who it is or how many red flags that come up in that relationship. Our hearts are making the decision that a relationship, sex, or marriage is way better than what God has for us in this life, in singleness. Now I say all this not to focus on singleness, uh, but to make a point about how difficult it is to be patient in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, even though those that are unjust. We all, th- we all go through suffering in our own ways, right? I, sa- I was talking about singleness, but maybe there are other things that are coming up for you in your own life. We, don't, we either don't trust God's timing or we are not patient. Uh, for, we are patient for the wrong reasons. That's how we fail to trust God in our hearts. So first, what do I mean when we don't trust God's timing? What I mean is that we become impatient. So think about the, the farmer again. The farmer knows that he can't rush the process of growing that precious fruit. That's out of his control. But as we all know, we can become impatient in this process. That means the farmer, you know, can try to find a shortcut. He can stray far from the process to get what he wants. And that's so easy for us to do in our own lives in the midst of suffering. Uh, We can try to find immoral shortcuts or take matters into our own hands. Uh, If we want that promotion and we see our colleagues trying to manipulate their way to get that promotion, it's easy to join them in that as well. Uh, If we want to do well on a test and we see others, you know, cheating, uh, we can use that as justification for also joining them in that as well. There's a lot of unfair and unjust things that happen around us and to us, uh, and it's easy to respond back in a way where we become impatient, where we do things that are more evil than godly. We aren't trusting in God's timing. The second way we fail at being patient is we are patient for the wrong reasons. Um, And this one, I think, is a bit more sneaky um, because it doesn't come across as more evil, um, but is just as evil because in your heart, you're actually trusting something other than Jesus. And I think that's really challenging because uh, here's the illustration. Let's say Jesus came back later tonight on Sunday night, March forgot the date, but <laughs> but let's say he came back tonight, okay, and Jesus said, I'm here, here to redeem the world, here to save the world, uh, all evil is going to be gone, and I think some of us, and I struggled with this as I was thinking about it, maybe there's a part of me that would still say, man, I really wish I still experienced marriage, or man, I really uh, wish I had a little bit more time to do this or that. This actually makes me think of Genesis 19, where Uh, God saves Lot and his wife from the destruction of Sodom for their evils. And what the story tells us is that as uh, God is giving justice to Sodom for its evils, uh, 
Lot's wife is looking back at the city. She's desiring her old life again. Even though God has come and, come and saved her, she is still looking back at her old life. So I, think, so I think some of us can be like Lot's wife. Under the disguise of patience, we desire not Jesus, but something else. We are being patient as a means to be rewarded with something in this life. So what James says here, I think, is actually a comfort and a challenge. We can be comforted knowing that Jesus is going to come back. We can trust that. Jesus is coming back. That can comfort us. But we're also challenged because in our hearts, is it really Jesus coming back? Is that what we really want in our hearts? So uh, it's not only patience that God has called us to, but he calls us to not grumble in the face of persecution and other types of suffering as well. Um, So if you look in verse 9, James says, uh, we must not grumble against one another. When we experience suffering, it's easy to turn our frustrations against one another. Uh, We grumble, we complain, we criticize, we tear people down, we can constantly judge other people. Uh, James commands us to actually not do this because of the same reason that we can be patient, that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is standing at the door to judge all evil. And this is a hard saying because it's so easy for us to misunderstand. Uh, James isn't saying we can't acknowledge or lament suffering. Uh, He isn't saying that we shouldn't do something about our suffering. But what he is saying is that our experience of suffering shouldn't harden our hearts. It shouldn't turn us into cold and callous people to where we're always hating life, that we're bitter towards God, we're bitter towards others. And what James does is he gives us another uh, two illustrations this time. The first time he gave us the farmer for patience, but this time he gives us two groups of people. He gives us the prophets and Job. The prophets uh, spoke against injustice and evil in their time. They, because of that, they experienced unfair criticism, unfair oppression because of what they were saying. Um, and it, I, if you imagine, it'd be easy to grumble against God, to grumble against others, to criticize, to tear down. But it, what we read in God's word is that these prophets continue to speak truth, truth with love. And when we look at Job, we see someone experiencing unfair suffering as well. Job lost many of his possessions and even family members. Um, And Job also had the temptation to grumble against God, to grumble against others, to become bitter and to actually hurt other people because of his own pain. But what we see is that he does not respond that way. He continues to ask questions about why, God, why is this happening to me? And he continues to seek God. He doesn't turn against him, but he continues to have faith in him. So both of these examples uh, didn't fall into the trap of grumbling, of hating life, of becoming bitter, of hurting others because of their pain. And I think this is what we all want in our life, right? We actually want to surround ourselves with people like this. Who wants to be a grumbler? right? Who wants to surround themselves with friends who always grumble about their own lives? It's like, you, you could be just, you know, person they vent to all the time, and that just gets exhausting, right? Um, and so one way that I saw this as I was looking uh, for uh, a reason uh, to encourage us and why we want someone who does not grumble um, was actually when I was watching a show this past week called Ted Lasso. 
um, Ted Lasso. Uh, season three opening episode was this past week. Uh, if you aren't familiar with Ted Lasso, it's a show about an American who knows nothing about soccer, and he becomes a soccer coach uh, of a team in England called AFC Richmond. And what I love about Ted, and I believe what other people love about Ted, is that he's not a grumbler. Uh, this doesn't mean Ted's life isn't difficult. If you watch the show, it's actually very difficult. Uh, he's harshly criticized from the media about how bad of a coach he is, how bad his team is, uh, and sometimes these criticisms come from his boss, uh, sometimes his friends, and he has friends that sometimes try to sabotage what he's doing, right? Um, and he's also going through the pain of his divorce and also not being able to see his son all the time. So Ted's life is hard, right? But if you watch the show, you also know that Ted is one to crack jokes all the time. He makes light of life. He doesn't let that suffering hit him in a way where it turns him into a criticizer, a grumbler, a complainer. He has all these amazing or clear opportunities to do those things, to actually attack in, in a way where it hurts others, but instead he chooses not to. And what you see is that Ted is able to give life to those around him. When others are grumbling about their lives, he doesn't add to all the grumbling. He encourages and lifts people up. So we can learn a lot from Ted, right? You don't have to crack jokes or laugh like Ted. Uh, some of his jokes are kind of like, you know, dad jokes, so I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to come up with any of those. Um, but you can choose to believe that these unjust things, these things that cause pain and toil in our life, have no ultimate power. And I think as Christians, uh, we can actually say that's true. We can, that's actually possible. I know Ted Lasso is just a fictitious show, and we can just say, you know, that's just uh, something that's not possible. But for us as Christians, we can say that's possible. We can say it's possible because we know uh, that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is going to take that suffering upon himself. He's going to make all things right. It's not on us to respond in a way where suffering is the end of the story. And that's the good news. Now, I want to caveat that. Uh, I want to be careful here. Does this actually mean that we avoid suffering? Um, and this is why I loved what happened in the opening episode of season three in Ted Lasso. Uh, Ted has a son named, named Henry. And for Ted, uh, if maybe you know someone this, like this in your own life, but for Ted, his danger is that he can avoid suffering. He can avoid pain and, and toil. He can actually laugh too much. He cannot take things too seriously. And so uh, in this conversation he has with his son Henry, he says a very Ted thing. He says, uh, life isn't all about winning. And what Henry says in response, and this is just a kid, but it's so wise, he says to his dad, Dad, you can still try to win. You can still try to win. Even if life isn't all about winning, you can still try to win. That's because losing does stink. Nobody wants to lose. Ted's life would be easier if his team actually won, that if he actually studied the, you know, the tactics and strategies of soccer, his life would be easier, right? There'd be less suffering, less criticism. And I think we're all called to make our circumstances better in the midst of suffering. And so what we see in both Ted and Henry, I think, is something uh, that encapsulates the wisdom that we receive from James. 
We can both laugh in the face of suffering while also longing for the peace at the same time. We can both laugh in the face of suffering but also long for the peace. And I think that's the good news, right? And as we take these words from James, what does that mean for us? I think we need to actually ask ourselves, do I actually grumble? Do I turn my frustration towards others because life is difficult? Do I harbor bitterness within my heart? Are you grumbling about your family, your spouse, what your friend did to you this last week, what you do or don't have on your plate this coming week? Maybe even grumble about our church and our imperfections as a church. If you think about it, you can grumble for the rest of your life. There's a lot of things you can continue to grumble about. But James says this is not the way. The constant grumbler doesn't have a heart that trusts in Jesus coming back. If we grumble, we act as though suffering is the end of the story. But it's not the end. And that's why we can laugh, love, and try to make things better because we know that Jesus is the end of the story. So as we go on to the last behavior uh, that James calls us to, he does not only just patience uh, and to not grumble as well, um, but he also says in verse 12, uh, to not swear, to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now what James means here is that, that we can't, he's not forbidding that we can't make an oath or make a vow, right? If you're married, you've made a vow to your spouse, if you are a member at this church, you've made a vow to all the other members at this church. So it's not forbidding vows, but it's forbidding vows made without the intention of fulfilling them, right? It's not being honest with our words. And as God's people, we must be people of our word. So what is the connection that James is trying to make to patience and to not grumble uh, with not swearing or not making an oath? Well, scholars actually you know, don't agree, agree on this. There's various opinions about what is the connection. Um, but what I want us to do this morning is to point us back to the context and the type of people that God wants us to be. So in the whole book of James, we've been instructed in how to act in a fractured world, right? Our sermon series is uh, about a fractured world, how to act in it. A fractured world is going to have a lot of division. It's going to have a lot of unjust things that happen, injustice. And what God wants us to do as a church is not to isolate ourselves from that world, to separate ourselves from that world, but to actually be in that world, to engage all that suffering that sin causes, to, and to actually not be overwhelmed by it, and to actually make things a little bit better. So that's suffering well, right? And how we're going to do that is by being patient, by not grumbling about how things are, and to actually be people of our word, to be t people that have integrity. But here's the good news. It's not up to us to be perfect in all of this. We don't have to have a perfect record uh, to change the world, right? Uh, the redemption of the world uh, does need someone who is able to do this, it's not, but we can be comforted knowing that it's not our own record. Um, but a record of someone else. We need someone else who is able to put things back together, someone who is able to take our mess, to enter into the mess, to not be overwhelmed by that mess, and to show us the way to that peace and unity. And that person is Jesus. Jesus answered the call. James gives us these instructions in James uh, chapter 5, 
but it's only Jesus that is able to fulfill all these commands perfectly in his life. From the day he was born, Jesus was patient. He never grumbled. And he said he, was, he did what he said he was going to do. And he did that over the course of his life. And I know, we have many children in this church, right? Just think about those children, or maybe think of yourself when you were a child. How many times did you uh, show acts of impatience? Show acts of grumbling? How many times did you already lie to someone, right? And yet Jesus did not do this as a child nor as an adult. And that's our hope. James points us to that in his instructions. Uh, he says, be patient. Why? Be patient because Jesus is coming back. Be patient because of Jesus. Be patient because of a person. And I think that's something that we cannot overlook. If it weren't for Jesus, these commands would just be wishful thinking for us. There is no um, secret compartment within us that if you just got access to it, you unlocked it, all of a sudden you'd be a more patient person. No, the key to patience is actually a person outside of you, someone outside of us. Someone, uh, the good news resides out of yourself. It's the good news of Jesus that transforms us in our hearts to make us better at being patient, to not grumble, and to be people of our word. So if you want to do these things that James is talking about, uh, the answer, the first step actually, is to simply look at Jesus. To look at who Jesus was and what he did. And I want to end here looking at verse 11 again to illustrate this point. Um, verse 11 talks about Job. Um, so I'll go ahead and read it. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So if you know the story of Job, uh, he experienced so much suffering. Uh, a lot of things he lost, his family members he lost, possessions he lost. He was in physical agony, and God uh, kind of left them in the dark about it. And I think uh, an argument can be made is that what was Job's best life? Was it before suffering? Was it during suffering or after suffering? And I think that's an argument we make our, about ourselves as well. It's like, I had a previous season that was better than this current season. Or I'm waiting for this next season because there is less suffering in that season. But what James says here is that Job is blessed as a result of his suffering. In his suffering, he learned steadfastness. But above all, we all saw God. Through Job's suffering, we all see God. He saw God. Job was better off after suffering because he saw God for who he truly was, that he was merciful and compassionate. So church, we have an amazing God. We have a God who says, stay in that suffering because you'll see me. Let's not run away. Let's not turn to other things other than him. Jesus is right around the corner. That is the promise. Jesus is coming back. So let's pray that we can suffer well until he does come back. Let's pray.